That's Psalm 85. The text reads like this. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The church in this country needs revival. Between 1968 and 2022, one in every four pregnancies resulted in abortion. That is 10 million children down hospital sinks. The government is currently planning to bring a bill to ban so-called conversion therapy, which would make calls to repentance a crime. And while all of this is going on, the state church is falling over itself to write liturgies and services to bless what God abominates. The church in this country needs revival. I didn't say awakening where God sweeps entire towns or cities or nations into the kingdom. I said revival meaning a restrengthening of what has already been made alive. Not because we are the hope of the world, but because our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the hope of the world. And for us to bring His life to a world of death 
We need supernatural strength. We need divine power. We need Holy Spirit anointing. And to be clothed with power from on high, just as the apostles were in the first century. The title then of this message is simply, Revive Us. We're not going to be looking at all of Psalm 85 tonight. The last time I preached on uh, Sunday evening, I said that for the foreseeable future, I'm just going to be taking single verses or one or two verses that have really brought me to my knees in my own times with the Lord. And Psalm 85 verses 6 and 7 did that for me. The sons of Korah, the authors there, lamenting the the discipline of God on a stiff-necked and rebellious people. And so what do they do? They, They plead with God to revive them. To revive the people. Now listen, I don't know, and you don't know, whether or not we're in this state that we're in right now, because the church is under the discipline of God. I don't have the bat phone to heaven. And neither do you. And so we can't know. And if you look at the numbers, then there are actually encouraging signs, even at this point in history, here in this godless and crooked, perverse nation. Bible-preaching, gospel-loving churches are growing, even if it is incremental growth. And yet, given where we are as a nation, would any of us dare argue that we need less of God's strength, not more? Would any of us claim that we need less of God's reviving power, not more of God's reviving power? Well, if you are informed, and if you are living on planet Earth, then look with me at Psalm 85, verses 6 and 7, because there the sons of Korah write these words, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us, Your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So first we're going to think about the source of revival. The source of revival. The writers pray, will you, God, not revive us again? Why? Because revival comes from God. That's why. Because revival comes from God. Sin has such a deadening effect on the soul. Such a paralyzing power on the mind. And such a corrosive effect on the life of a church that only an omnipotent hand can reverse its effects. And so the sons of Korah pray, Will you not revive us again? Can I candle light itself? Can a field harvest itself? Can a body nourish itself? And can a light bulb turn itself on? Well, in exactly the same way, God's people are revived by God alone. And we could dim the lights 
Uh, We could sing repetitive songs. I could stand up here for hours on end and I could tell us emotional stories. And the only thing that would be be produced would be the spiritual equivalent of a sugar rush. We would be revived for 25 seconds. A true revival of hearts and minds comes from God. And therefore, if it's revival that we want, then we need to look to heaven for God to do what only he can do. And all of our carnal methods need to be swept out of our hands. And where our knees need to be broken and and bent down to the earth and we need to cry to heaven, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And the question for us tonight then is, how does God revive his people? Well, I am going to devote an entire point to that uh, during this message. But for now, I'll simply say what I said this morning. God revives his people through the power of his words. You know, the Old Testament really is just jam-packed full of examples of, of this point. And the first example we get is actually in the very first chapter of the Bible. Because in the first chapter of the Bible, what do we see? Well, we see God creating form. So there are the heavens, and there is the earth, and there are the seas. But then on day four, five, and six of creation, what do we see? Well, we see God speaking, and the form is filled with fullness, so that now the skies The heavens are filled with stars and the sun and the moon and the earth is teeming with life and the waters are swarming with creatures. Why? Because God said and God said and God said. And without God's words spoken in us, we're like blank canvases. We're like cars without engines. We're like books without words. We're like car tires without air. And then you come over to Ezekiel 37 and we read this. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord, you know. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, There was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. 
And therefore, to you walking skeletons tonight, sinews and muscle and skin will come upon you by the breath of the word of God. And then there's Nehemiah and Ezra at the water gate where all the people were gathered as one man into the square before the water gate and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. How many of you woke up this morning and thought to yourself, give me Leviticus. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And what happened? The people were revived. Now listen, if I had preached every word of this sermon up until this point in an Orthodox Jewish synagogue, I would have been met with nothing but amens. No problems here at all. But what we need to remember as disciples of Jesus Christ is that God revives his people through his written word as it relates to the living word, Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's why, friends, I I endeavor, I know I fail often, but I at least endeavor, whether we're in the book of Daniel or the book of Genesis or the book of Haggai or the Psalms or the book of Ruth or wherever we are in the Bible to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified to you. Spurgeon said, a sermon without Christ, it is an awful, a horrible thing. It is an empty well. It is a cloud without rain. It is a tree twice dead, plucked up by the roots. It is an abominable thing to give men stones for bread and scorpions for eggs. And yet they do so who preach not Jesus. A sermon without Christ? We may as well talk about a loaf of bread without flour. How can it feed the soul? And we answer, it can't. And the reason... The church is on life support in this country. It's because Jesus has been excommunicated from so many pulpits. So listen church, when you get alone with God's word, and I hope and pray you do do that, don't just read it, pray, put it down, and move on. But ask yourself, how does this written word point me now to the living word? Jesus Christ. So let's say, for example, there's, there's failure in the passage that you read. There's, there's David and Bathsheba. Here he is, this man after, after God's own heart. And then his hands are dripping with the blood of an innocent man having committed adultery and then impregnated this guy. And it's just a nightmare. You can say to yourself, yeah, but Jesus is the better king. And he never failed. And he will never fail. 
And he never sinned because if he sinned, then he couldn't atone for sinners like me and for sinners like David. And so I have this amazing king of righteousness and of love and of holiness. And he's all that I need. And he was all that David needed. Or you think to yourself for a moment, you you read about the priests, you're in Leviticus and you just think, I just don't know what to do with the book of Leviticus. I don't see how it's in the Bible or why it's even for me. Well, you can remember, you can remind yourself that these priests, even if they kept the very letter of the law, they would have to offer sin first for their sin and then for the sin of the people. And you can think to yourself, yeah, but I've got a great high priest whose name is love. And he ever lives and pleads for me. He was sinless. I am sinful. He's the only high priest who would really do to bring me into the very presence of God. And friend, you just watch your soul get revived by the power of the word written as it relates to the living word of Christ. So we've seen, we've thought about the source of revival, but I want us to think second about the goal of revival. Look at verse six. It says, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And so the source of revival is God, but then the goal of revival is what? Joy in God. It it comes down from God and it rebounds to God's glory in the world that your people may rejoice in you. And therefore, revival is not about filled pews. It's not about longer membership directories. It's not about better and healthier budgets. All of those things are just the fruit of revival and the fruit of a, of a healthy church. The, the goal of revival is God's. And that's essential to remember here in Psalm 85, especially given verse 1, because Psalm 85 verse 1 says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. And if you want to misunderstand Psalm 85 badly, you could say that the sons of Korah were calling on God chiefly to restore all of their material and earthly blessings. But the reason for the desolation of the land and the reason the, the hearts of the sons of Korah broke at the desolation of the land is because they understood what it meant. Ichabod, the glory has departed. God has distanced himself from us. And that's why we're in the state we're in. And therefore it was God's absence that, that was their chief concern. And so they prayed that that they might be revived in order to rejoice in God again. In order to rejoice in God's person and God's work and God's faithfulness and God's attributes and all that God is for us. Yes, Lord, we want your blessings. Yes, Lord, we we need your favor in our lives and, and in the lives of our children. Lord, we die without it. But oh Lord, without you, what is the good of those things? Take the world, give us Jesus. As a deer plants for flowing streams, so plants our souls for you, O God. Our souls thirst for God. 
for the living God. When shall we come and appear before God? Our tears have been our food day and night while they say to us all the day long, where is your God? And might, not, might that not be the reason that we find ourselves in such desperate need for revival again today because for far too long we have been satisfied with so little of God. And therefore, since the goal of revival, joy in God, is not sought by us, we don't have it in our lives. And we're not kept up at night by questions like, how much of God do I really know? And do I walk with God like Enoch walked with God? And do I speak with God as a man speaks to his friend like Moses did of old and does the use of my time and does the use of my money say to God Psalm 73 whom have I in heaven but you and on the earth Lord there's nothing I desire beside you my heart and my flesh they may fail but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever is that what my life is that what my time is that what my money says about what I love most in my life. And therefore, again, since we don't pursue the goal of revival, we don't have revival. And we have not because we ask not, and we ask not because we want not. And if that's you here tonight, friend, let me just plead with you. Weaken the power of your addictions in your life because those things are substitute joys for Jesus. They are. And so what are you addicted to tonight? What are these addictions in your life? We thought about alcohol this morning, didn't we? Is it alcohol? Is it social media? Is it entertainment? Is it a circle of friends that don't produce within you this joy for God? Our friends, weaken those things until they're powerless in your life. And just by the way, all of those things are going to fail you anyway. Right? So if you're heart and if your joy is tethered to your money what is going to happen to your heart when moth and rust destroys them well your soul is going to be destroyed with them or if your heart is tethered to your healthy body what is going to happen to your joy when the doctor says to you you've got two to three weeks and there's nothing more we can do for you or if your joy is tethered to your spouse and praise God that there is that, that love for your spouse, what's going to happen when she passes away and passes on to glory? And if your ultimate joy is found in any worldly thing, what's going to happen to it when the world as we know it is no more? Remember what George Mueller said? He said, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day. And remember, he did have a lot of business to attend to every day. He said this, is to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about is not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, how I might get my soul into a happy state, and how my inner man might be nourished. That's what he said. And may it be so among us. And so there's the source of revival. There's the goal of revival. And I want us to look lastly at the means of revival. Because the psalmist's uh, 
pray, don't they? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. How is revival experienced in the lives of God's people? Well, it is through the revelation of God's steadfast love. That's how God revives his people. Let's just read the whole passage again from verse 6 and see how it all fits together. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. That will do it. It's as though the psalmist is saying, Lord, show us how much you love us and we'll be revived. There'll be air in the tires. There'll be words on those blank pages. There'll be paint on that blank canvas. You show us your love for us and we will have revival all day long. And therefore, what I want to say to us Tonight, church, is this, if we're going to be a revived people, we've got to be a gospel people because the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is how God has shown his steadfast love to us and how he has granted our salvation to us. What the sons of Korah begged God for, God has given to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. John Stott said this, he said, The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. And the cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled because it is there that the flame of God's love is shown for us. And you heard me preach just a few weeks ago, didn't you, on these verses from Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And there is the love of God. In his book, Christ-Centered Preaching, Brian, Brian Chappell has this moving illustration. And he, he writes, Two brothers decided to play on sandbanks by the river's edge because, because our town depends on the river for commerce. Uh, dredges regularly clear its channels of sand and deposit it in great mounds beside the river. Nothing is more fun for children than playing on these mountainous sand piles and few things are more dangerous. While the sand is still wet from the river's bottom, the dredges dump it on the shore. The piles of sand dry with rigid crusts that often conceal cavernous internal voids formed by the escaping water. And if a child climbs on a mound of sand that has such a hidden void, the external surface easily collapses into the cavern. Sand from higher on the mount, uh, mound then rushes into the void, trapping the child in a sinkhole of loose sand. And this is exactly what happened to the two brothers as they raced up one of the larger mounds. When the boys did not return home for dinner time, family and neighbors organized a search. They found the younger brother. Only his head and shoulders protruded from the mound. 
He was unconscious from the pressure of sand on his body. The searchers began digging frantically. And when they cleared the sand to his waist, he roused the consciousness. Where is your brother? The rescuer shouted. And the brother replied, I am standing on his shoulders. With the sacrifice of his own life, the older brother had lifted the younger to safety. And we are recipients of the love of God because our older brother lifted us to safety. And since sacrifice, since love rather is measured by sacrifice, we are loved infinitely. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. And in that knowledge, we're revived. We're alive again, aren't we? We're full to overflowing. Revival is possible at the cross of Christ. And there's a sense in which, therefore, we have no excuse for not being revived. Because the message that revives us has been given to us. Jesus Christ has been clearly portrayed as crucified. But to those of you who want to know it more, I do want to just close with three recommendations for us. And the first is this, inform your mind with the truth of Calvary. Inform your mind with the truth of Calvary. We, we sometimes sing, don't we? Oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant to thee, the Holy One, to, t- to bear away my sin. And yet, we don't take advantage of the almost limitless resources that have been put together to help us to understand it. And to help us to take it in. You, you think of those, I think about these pastors in, in uh, places like Albania I would say almost every single week. There I am. I'm able to, to wade through six or seven or however many commentaries. Some of them don't even have a single copy of a commentary to help them put together the word of God for their people on the Lord's day. Think about that. And yet here we are in this country. We're drowning in resources that help us to understand the cross of Christ. Next, engage your soul in meditation about Calvary. Meditation, not like the world meditates. The world meditates by emptying its mind. No, we need to inform our mind. We need to fill our mind. And when we've informed and filled our mind with the truth of Calvary, we can meditate as though before the very feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can choose the better portion. And we can be lost in wonder and love and praise in view of his nail-pierced feet. And then lastly, fulfill your calling by worshipping. Because Ephesians chapter 1 says that God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's why you were born. That's why you were born again. 
to be to the praise of his glorious grace. And there's no better place to do that than the cross of Calvary. Amen. Amen. Well, let me pray for us and then we'll worship.